It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Peter Ross, and he is an adjunct professor in Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of British Columbia. And we're talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation entitled, They're Everywhere, New Study Finds Polyester Fibers Throughout the Arctic Ocean. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Peter Ross is an ocean pollution scientist, and he has published over 160 scientific articles and book chapters on the fate and effects of a variety of contaminants in the Pacific, Arctic, and Atlantic Oceans. And as I mentioned, he is currently an adjunct professor at UBC, Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences, but also at the University of Victoria School of Environmental Studies. So, uh, Dr. Peter Ross, welcome to the show. Uh, Yes, hello, thank you. And uh, your article, They're Everywhere, New Study Finds Polyester Fibers Throughout the Arctic Ocean. Now, I understand you were, were you necessarily looking for polyester fibers when you started to do your research on this? Well, that's a, a great question, is it? Isn't it? Um, not really. What we set out to do was to look for microplastics. Uh, of course, an emerging concern, uh, and so microplastics, basically any particle, synthetic plastic, smaller than five millimeters. Uh, that's that's what we were looking for, uh, and we did so. Uh, throughout the Arctic, from Norway to the North Pole, into the Arctic archipelago of uh, the High Arctic in Canada, mm. and then across into the Beaufort Sea above uh, the Yukon and uh, Alaska. So we set out to look for microplastics, uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, we were able to collect samples of seawater from 71 stations uh, across the Arctic, and then 26 stations down to over 1,000 meter meters in depth. Uh, And in those samples, we cleaned them up and we counted, measured, uh, and identified the mystery uh, particles of plastic in every sample. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about that in depth in in a moment. But first of all, let's give you a little bit more background about this. You know, one of the things about the Arctic, we hear so much about the Arctic these days, of course, with the melting ice caps and all of those things, uh, with the the changing environment, uh, climate that we have, and how that is potentially threatening us, uh, raising the ocean levels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You begin your article by talking about how this can be a threat to the Inuit and other indigenous communities in the north who rely on the, the seafood, the marine mammals uh, for food. But I guess we're, we're also talking about a threat to the mammals and the seafood themselves. Well, I guess that's why we get concerned about anything that is uh, made by us humans uh, and ends up in the environment. It could be a nasty chemical that uh, that is deliberately designed like DDT. It could be a nasty chemical that is uh, inadvertently uh, designed as a, as a byproduct of a number of processes like dioxins. It could be a metal like mercury that is released uh, surreptitiously through the combustion of coal. So there are a lot of different... Um, Uh, elements or chemicals uh, or wastes that end up in the environment that uh, that end up being harmful to animals uh, that get into the food web, uh, that climb up the food web in various ways, uh, and to a degree contaminate uh, seafoods for for all peoples. And that's what we worry about. We worry about uh, not inert chemicals that get into food webs and don't do anything at all, 
We worry about chemicals that get into the food webs and cause harm. And that's what we're worried about with, uh, with microplastics. We don't necessarily think about our planet as a living organism. It produces the things that we uh, ourselves eat and use to live and provide a, a life for ourselves. But the fact is, and I, I wouldn't mind if you could explain this a little bit more, because you're dealing with the oceans and you've talked about the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Arctic. Well, this is just the northern hemisphere we're talking about of this, I, I guess. But the, the flow of these oceans and how the waters flow and move things around... And, and I refer to that because, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go to the north a couple of times. One, when I was up in uh, the Akviat area, uh, Arviat, up around uh, Hudson Bay area, and they took me out on the land to see this, this uh, a lake where they used to go swimming and, and, and spend some time. And they said, nobody goes there anymore. And this is a while back. And I said, oh, well, how come nobody goes there? They said, because it's a dead lake. And I said, why is it dead? And they said, because, you know, all that... Air pollution that you guys produce down south, guess where it comes? And I had not thought about that, you know. So there, I'm just referring to the airflow that takes those pollutants that carries them up north and then dumps them into the Arctic. So is, is, are the oceans in a, in a similar fashion? Well, they are. And, you know, the incredible story here, I believe, is that the Arctic is, has become a barometer of the health of our planet. Mm. And we in the South, uh, in North America, in Asia, uh, in Europe, don't always think of the North as, um, as an area that is at the receiving end of industrial pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, we often think of the North as a remote, spectacular, beautiful place that is largely untouched by humans and is sparsely populated, right. mostly by Inuit uh, people, mm-hmm. uh, circumpolar. Um, and the, the reality is though, the more we look, the more we realize that the Arctic is at the receiving end of pollutants from the south or uh, feels the impacts of pollution from the mm. south. We can think of climate change, of course, which is uh, enhanced in the north. It's, it's far uh, greater, a far greater phenomena in the, in the north than it is in the south. Mm. Uh, and that's changing sea ice extent. It's changing seasons. It's, it's making uh, ice roads more hazardous. It's changing the distribution of uh, seabirds, marine mammals, uh, and fish. We can also think about chemicals like PCBs, DDT, mercury, hydrocarbons, etc., they can travel through the air, through the atmosphere in a matter of days, maybe eight days from mm. the industrial heartland of North America or Euro Asia into the Arctic. Mm. Uh, and we can think of now microplastics that move uh, around the planet as we see it. And we have no reason to believe that our observations are telling us anything significant about local sources in the Arctic. In fact, we found from Norway through the North Pole into the Canadian Arctic, very little variation across uh, the space, across the geography of the north. Uh, so no hotspots, no real indication that there was you know, a community in the north that was contaminated in mm. the Arctic Ocean. Mm. And we know that in addition to atmospheric currents that can deliver pollutants very quickly into the Arctic, we have ocean currents that can deliver uh, uh, contaminants of various kinds, whether it's chemicals or microplastics. Uh, into the Arctic uh, Ocean. Uh, And this might be a slower process, but we do have a conveyor belt, a very methodical conveyor belt, uh, uh, as it is often described by oceanographers, that moves 
waters around the North Atlantic and then up into the Arctic and then back out again at, uh, at the surface. So we know that there are mechanisms to deliver industrial pollutants of any kind uh, into the Arctic. And we know that the Arctic has been at the receiving end of these contaminants for decades. And we know that this, in some cases, can present risks to the sea life and to the Inuit and other residents of the Arctic. Right. So when you took your samples that you referred to earlier back, you said you looked at them, you cleaned them up, you, you identified them, and you, you found these polyester fibers. You did find something else interesting, I think, about the, the East and West compared to the Pacific and Atlantic? Yeah. And while I, I acknowledge that we didn't find any local hotspots or evidence of local uh, inputs of large amounts of microplastics in the Arctic, we did see a very broad ranging trend. Uh, and that was revealed in uh, higher concentrations of microplastics in the Eastern Arctic, mm. that is above the Atlantic Ocean, right. than in the Western Arctic, that is above the Pacific Ocean. Right. About three times higher concentrations uh, in the East. And we felt that this provided a little bit of um, speculative evidence that perhaps the Atlantic Ocean was playing a more dominant role in contaminating the Arctic or delivering mm. microplastic particles into the Arctic than the Pacific. Mm. And of course, you know, mammals would be we'd be breathing these these things in, and plastics, of course, as we know, are in large amounts are, are hazardous. Uh, they sometimes uh, suffocate animals, can have hazardous effects on their internal organs. What are your concerns about the kind of fibers that you have been finding and the concentration that you've been finding? Yeah, and it's, it's a difficult one for someone studying the real world because often the evidence of harm disappears. Mm. That is, all of the, the evidence that we might expect, like a, a, a sick animal or a, a dead animal or a dying animal or a starving animal, they're often picked up very quickly in Mother Nature's scavengers and predators. So uh, we lose the evidence. Yeah. Um, what we can do to talk a little bit about the risk to, to sea life is to look at the examples from, uh, from decades gone by where we saw sea turtles mistaking plastic bags for jellyfish, which is their preferred food. Mm. We see albatross skimming the surface of the Pacific uh, Ocean, picking up little bits and pieces of brightly colored plastic that fills their stomachs um, and is also fed to their chicks back at their colonies. Mm. We can see seals and whales getting tangled up uh, in uh, fishing gear or swallowing everything from golf balls to boots to raincoats to, to uh, different bags and boxes and things. We've seen astronomical examples of uh, different uh, pieces of plastic, uh, and we've seen direct evidence of harm for those charismatic creatures, the bigger creatures, the wildlife that that, that we see in, in wonderful uh, footage um, on uh, TV, internet, or, or otherwise in, in the media. Mm. What we don't see, though, very often is the same kind of pictures uh, are the same kind of pictures from smaller creatures like baby fish, salmon, char, cod, herring, uh, crabs, zooplankton etc. Mm. But this is where my concern steps up a little bit. Uh, and that is, if we have large creatures uh, accidentally eating chunks of plastic, uh, and that 
causes direct harm. It maybe uh, blocks their stomach. Maybe it uh, uh, creates artificial satiation insofar as they're not hungry anymore because their stomach is full, but it's full of something that's not very nutritious. If we're seeing these same types of harm uh, in smaller creatures like zooplankton or baby fish of any kind, then what we're talking about is the potential for microplastics to be doing the same thing at the bottom of the food chain as we've long considered plastics to be doing at the top of the food chain. And so I think this really amplifies our concerns collectively about the potential for damage to ocean productivity uh, at a wider scale than maybe we had previously acknowledged. Mm. Now, again, going back to the fibers that you have been finding, the the polyester, I, I also was surprised to see that you pointed out natural fibers as well, though. Um, I thought, great, I'm a, I, I wear cotton. You know, I can't wear polyester. I'm, I'm allergic to those uh, sort of products. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in the clear. But are natural fibers also a concern? Well, they might be. Um, and, you know, like you, I'm a big fan of cotton. But we've got to, at the same time, acknowledge that um, plastic is not the only way in which we harm the environment. And right. it's not the only uh, clothing that has the potential right. for negative consequences. Right. We know that cotton is the most intensively uh, pesticide applied crop in the world. It is mm. uh, something in the order of 50 kilograms per hectare per year. So it's a wow. pesticide intensive crop. Mm. It's also a water intensive crop. It uses a lot of water to, 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 to grow. So cotton, uh, if it's not organic, uh, has the potential to, to have harm. Mm. Uh, we also know at some point, we also know, um, that some chemicals are added to clothing to make them water resistant or to color them yes. or to prevent, uh, uh heat or fire, etc. Yeah. So yeah. there are a lot of ways in which clothing can harm, uh, the health of, uh, animals out there or potentially of humans. Um, so I think in, you know, at the end of the day, uh, science needs to do its best to document uh, the source, transport, fate, and effects of any and all types of contaminants or pollutants. And I think right now there's an explosion in the interest uh, in what uh, textiles could be doing to the planet. And the more we look, the more we realize that fibers from textiles are uh, apparently ending up all over the world. Uh, and these are everything from polyester fibers to nylon to polypropylene to cotton, bamboo, uh, and other uh, other products uh, used in clothing. So science will do its best to figure out uh, the extent to which these different types of uh, fibers are contaminating the world uh, and the extent to which each type of uh, particle might present a, a risk to the health of uh, members of different levels in the food chain. So science is busy doing all of that. Uh, at this point in time, uh, I have, I guess I have particular concerns about any plastic in the ocean, whether it's macroplastic, big pieces of plastic, mm. or microplastic, pieces that are smaller than five millimeters, because plastic does break down physically into smaller and smaller pieces, but it is thought to never break down chemically, which means we are creating a layer of plastic that is akin to a geological sedimentary layer around our planet that may persist in, into thousands of years, if not millions of years. So that's my biggest concern about plastic is if it's indeed harmful uh, to the environment, why are we 
pumping out more and more of it uh, into the environment uh, where it's not going to break down uh, chemically uh, over time. Yeah, you raised some very good questions as well as some really good points there about, uh, to my surprise, even about the way, you know, I was not aware about uh, cotton and uh, the, the potentials there that you brought up in the manufacturing and the growing of it. So I thank you for pointing that out. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Peter Ross. He's an adjunct professor of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of British Columbia. We're talking to him about an article he authored in the conversation entitled, They're Everywhere, New Study Finds Polyester Fibers Throughout the Arctic Ocean. Uh, Doctor, the the polyester fibers, we're talking about post-manufacturing. Is that correct? Well, the fibers that we find are basically coming from everywhere. They're uh, basically an indication that humankind is releasing polyester fibers uh, into the ocean. Uh, 92% of the microplastic particles we found in the Arctic were fibers. 73% of those were polyester. So clearly there's a dominance of polyester fibers. And all of these are... um, Uh, approximately 10 to 15 microns thick. That's 10 to 15 one thousandth of a millimeter. So they're fairly thin and they're different colors. Uh, And this lines up almost precisely with the dimensions and uh, the polymer identities of uh, polyester fibers that we find in laundry machines and in wastewater treatment plants. So we do think that domestic homes, i.e. our washing machines at home, are uh, liberating, if you will, are releasing large quantities of polyester fibers as well as natural fibers and other fibers into uh, either wastewater treatment plants or directly into uh, aquatic environments. Uh, And this is leading to widespread contamination around the world. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Now, in terms of the amount of stuff that we're putting out there, you you give some, some numbers and it's quite astounding. 3.5 3.5 quadrillion fibers weighing eight, 878 tons? Wow. Yeah, these are the estimates that we came up with for just Canada and the United States. So every year, uh, we are estimating that wastewater treatment plants are uh, releasing basically the equivalent of uh, uh, eight or 10 uh, great blue whales in weight for polyester fibers. This is a, a, a staggering amount. And the numbers are very, very high. And it, uh, it um, equates to approximately 500 million fibers released by each household. So each household is releasing half a billion fibers or just under that uh, through uh, the washing machine. Mm. So I think this is something where um, w- we can actually start to say, um, you know what, folks, uh, what we're finding in the Arctic can be tracked right back to your home or mm-hmm. my home for that mm-hmm. matter. And what we wear uh, and what we choose to buy for clothing, uh, how often we wash it, how we wash it right. uh, and so forth. So I think to me, there's an intimate connection between the results of our uh, our, resu- our our studies in the North and everyday life for, for all Canadians. And in fact, uh, all citizens uh, around the world. Yeah. Appreciate you saying that, and it is fascinating. I just, I just cannot help but wonder at this planet, though, being able to handle all this stuff that we throw at it and still allow us to sustain ourselves so far. If you know what I'm saying. Well, it's a, it's a, a profound question, um, and you know, as a scientist, I, I, I recognize the value, the strength in having good 
uh, information, mm. good intelligence, mm. good radar as to what we're doing to the planet. Yep. Uh, and in the north, as well as in the south, we've been fortunate to work with many um, uh, Indigenous communities, uh, Inuit uh, First Nations, uh, where uh, Western science can assist, can complement, but it is not the only thing that provides information to our communities right. because traditional knowledge or Indigenous knowledge can give us more meaning, more value, more relevance, uh, and complement, sub supplement, mm. and strengthen the way in which Western science can provide that radar function for the world around us. But I think your question goes right to the crux of the matter. That is, we're living on a small planet. There are a lot of humans, uh, different cultures, different nationalities, different backgrounds. Uh, all of us de depend on a healthy planet. Uh, and I think it, it really speaks to the the need for collective action and teamwork. And if there's one example of a pollutant where I, as a, an ocean pollution expert, uh, gets a tiny bit of optimism, it's from the plastic example, because everybody understands plastic. Mm. Uh, folks in the north understand plastic pollution. They see fishing nets and debris and models and, and, and trash from, from, uh, from either local uh, contamination or from well offshore uh, and internationally. Uh, uh, and school kids in the South get plastic pollution. So I think we have an example here of um, a pollutant that everybody understands, everybody can visualize to a certain degree, and everybody uh, can take action on. And this is where I get some hope because we're, we're seeing an alliance uh, across the public, government, and private sectors where action is possible, it's conceivable, uh, and we can all roll our sleeves back because nobody is benefiting from having plastic or microplastic pollution in, in the ocean. Right. You made me think of another example, if you don't mind me just sharing this. A number of years ago on the west coast of Vancouver Island, uh, my brother-in-law was working on, in a logging camp, and it was a fly-in or, or, or by boat only. Uh, and my sister was going to go and visit him for a weekend, and she said, do you want to come in, you know, come up? And I went, sure, that would be great. And, uh, and I did, and of course it was on uh, the northwest coast of Vancouver Island, so uh, facing west, next stop is uh, Asia, I guess, over there. I was walking along this bay, you know, and we're in an extremely remote area, and I'm walking along the bay and I see some trash on the beach, and I thought, wow, there's trash here? And as I got closer to the trash, I looked at it and I thought, thought something looks funny about that trash. And so as I got closer, I actually picked up this bottle that was there. And it was written in, in a, an Oriental language. And I thought, wow. So just going back to your example of how this trash can travel around and move around. But I want to get back to the, the uh, current topic. And that is, uh, and, and specifically, that you point out that not all textiles shed equally either. That's right. Yeah. And you speak to the the uh, I guess the universal problem of plastic pollution, the world's oceans. Uh, that's that's a, a clear, um, uh, you know, a clear sign of, uh, of uh, danger or uh, emerging uh, concern. Uh, and so when we look at um, uh, laundry, uh, we actually tested uh, 37 different types of uh, materials, clothing materials, and we found almost 900 times difference in the uh, amount of fibers lost during a cycle of laundry, 900 fold difference between the low fiber shedders and the high fiber shedders, uh, which was very, very interesting to us. And to me, that observation speaks very clearly to the opportunity for the, the textile industry to design clothes yeah. that shed less. 
if you have that much variation, what types of materials, what types of designs shed less? And can we design better clothing that doesn't shed fibers every time we wash them? I think that's uh, instructive. Uh, and that provides a very positive guidance for uh, the industrial sector. Mm, it's, it certainly is. Uh, can you shed any more light or share any more on that, what you were finding in terms of, of how they shed? Is it, uh, ha- does it have to do with a fiber count per inch or something like that? Or what were you... <laughs> Yeah, there are different different factors that uh, that contribute to loss of fibers from clothing during laundry. But a, a key key one is the way in which the material is um, spun and uh, sort of uh, put together, if you will. Mm. Uh, and everybody can appreciate that a, a polyester fleece sweater, the warm and fuzzy ones, mm. they're fuzzy, they're right. warm, they're right. they're comfortable. Um, yes. We love them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, polyester fleece sweater can lose as much as 10 or 12 million fibers in a single load of laundry. Wow. Uh, and so those warm and fuzzy ones tend to be the ones that are most vulnerable to losing fibers, whereas some of the very smooth, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, nylon uh, materials right. made for, uh, you know, outdoor uh, wear, mm-hmm. uh, those wear, tend yeah. to lose much fewer fibers. So clearly design and, and material choice uh, play an important role here, um, and uh, that's giving guidance to to industry. But the homeowner can play a role here as well uh, by washing less frequently, by using cold water, by using liquid soap and less soap, and or even by adding a lint trap to one's washing machine. Those lint traps are available, and all of these things can help reduce fiber loss by a single household by up to 95%. So there's lots for industry to do, but there's also lots for for you and I to do at home as well. Well, it gives uh, everyone something to think about in terms of their purchases, in terms of the kind of uh, products that they might want to look at at, uh, purchasing. As you say, uh, people do like the warm, fuzzy, soft uh, clothing that you can pick up. Feels great next to you, keeps you warm. But I do also appreciate what you just said about the uh, filters that people can buy, the lint filters, and and put that in your your machine to help prevent that. I guess it means a little more cleaning on the end of the the homeowner in terms of uh, cleaning that lint filter out. But a good idea, of course, uh, because it also means less gumming up of your uh, of your your filters system and your, your, your system that is uh, sending things out into the air as well. So nicely said, Doctor. Anything else you can think of that we haven't touched on that you feel is important to mention just before we finish up? Well, I think our study was designed to look at microplastics. We found strong evidence that polyester and other textile-related fibers are dominating. But we also acknowledge that if we look on beaches and or in the open Pacific Ocean, we're going to find evidence that single-use plastic packaging that straws and beverage and and takeout food containers are are dominant and or that fishing gear in the high seas is is a real problem. So I think we have to acknowledge that uh, study design uh, in our case didn't obviously look for fishing gear, uh, but Mm. there are many, many different types of plastic pollution out there. uh, And uh, I think the more we look, the more we'll understand where these things are coming from. And that's going to ultimately help us turn off the tap uh, at source uh, and help protect uh, the oceans for uh, for everyone to use into the future. All right. Dr. Ross, a pleasure speaking with you about this. Thank you so much for bringing this uh, article to our attention. And uh, certainly, if people want to find out more, they can go to the conversation and look for Dr. Peter Ross's article entitled, They're Everywhere, A New Study Finds Polyester Fibers Throughout the Arctic Ocean. Dr. Ross, thank you once again for joining us. You're most welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
That's this part of the show. Please don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. My guest on Moment of Truth is Iger Grossman, is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo. And we're going to be speaking with him about an article he wrote in the conversation entitled Words of Wisdom, Four Tips from Experts on How to Endure Until the COVID-19 Pandemic Ends. Mm. Well, yes, we have been in this pandemic for some time. And even though there are uh, vaccines now being distributed, uh, we all know that it's going to be some time before uh, everyone gets vaccinated and the rollout continues. But a little bit more about Iger just before we uh, get into the conversation. Iger Grossman is a social cognitive scientist exploring the interplay of sociocultural factors of, for wisdom and sound judgment and developing methods for tracing societal change. His work has been published in such outlets as Proceedings of the Royal Academy, B, Perspectives on Psychological Science and Psychological Science a Journal of Experimental Psychology and the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. His contributions have been recognized through numerous awards, and Grossman is an associate editor of Social Psychological and Personality Science and co-hosts the On Wisdom podcast, aiming to disseminate science insights from psychology, philosophy, and cognitive sciences to the broad academic audience and the general public. There's a lot of big words in there, Iger, about the general public, Um, you know, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for the article that you wrote. We, you know, we are in this pandemic, and as you say, we're going to be in it for uh, right. a, a while longer. So, you know, the the article that you you are putting forward, one of the things you say, it's sort of in the midst. You're sort of going through this process right now, correct? That's right. But you have you did put the word out, and you got some scientists and some people from around the world, experts. Uh, can you give us a little bit more about about the uh, scope of the people that, that decided to participate in at least the initial uh, questioning that you put out there? Right. So the idea here was to get uh, expert opinions, um, expert judgments from uh, top scholars uh, in uh, behavioral and social sciences from around the world, uh, heavily dominated, of course, as much of uh, the academia is, unfortunately, by the North Americans, but also mm. we tried to get people from uh, the Asian realm, from mm. uh, Australia and uh, from Eastern Europe, from Western Europe. And uh, we particularly targeted uh, folks who were either uh, presidents of the uh, major scientific societies uh, dealing with behavioral and social issues such as uh, uh, Society for Personality and Social Psychology, Association of Psychological Science, American Psychiatric Association, uh, of Society for Effective Sciences, but also uh, the fellows of uh, the most distinguished uh, uh, national academies, uh, be it in Australia, in Europe, in Germany, or in the UK, in Canada, or in the US. Okay. And and did you do you feel that you got a fairly good representation of 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 a, a world um, uh, academia and and uh, scientific uh, body? 
we got a pretty good representation of people who are among the top leaders mm. in the field. We have a, a number of uh, over half of the participants who are the presidents uh, or uh, they were uh, members of the National Academy, for instance. Mm. But um, of course, the representation uh, from the field, from different parts of the world, uh, you can only uh, aspire to do that if you can really representatively sample, let's say, from South America mm. or from Africa. And mm. we unfortunately were not able to recruit anybody uh, from those regions on a short notice, mm. in part because I did not personally have connections with those people. Right. So a lot of these things were through personal connections. Everybody's so busy these days. Sure. So why did you think it was important to ask the, this question about you know, how we can get through until the end of the pandemic. Uh, why did you think, I'm just thinking that we've been this, in this for a while. Uh, people maybe have routines that they're, they're, you know, they've figured out by now to at least sustain themselves. What is it right. that you wanted to sort of find out by asking the question about how we can endure until the end of uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Well, when I started with this project, and this was... Uh, around the time of May, June mm. of last year, when I started uh, sort of creating it and putting up sort of the structure to it, um, there was not that much discussion actually about uh, it, uh, uh, specifically about uh, w what are the possible behavioral and social implications of the pandemic. Uh, at the beginning, and it continues until now, when you look at the public discourse, outside of the sort of occasional opinions in the media where people bring in experts like me to take a position on specific issues, the actual uh, policy agenda and the public discourse is dominated by two topics, economy and public health. And those mm. are very important topics, but as we have seen then over the summer and then into the fall and now in the winter, there's a lot of social issues going on. Uh, dealing with misinformation, dealing with mm. uh, people who do or do not want to follow rules, or how do you navigate even sort of this kind of different conflicts that you may have, internal conflicts within you. It's like, oh, I want to be with my family. I want to meet with somebody for holidays. And at the same time, I need to also keep my social distance in order not to get them infected. Mm. And uh, there are a number of social issues where... Uh, behavioral and social scientists could have been brought to the table, they were not. So, so my goal at the beginning was to, to an extent, to broaden the scope and bring in those experts. Um, and the initial idea was not necessarily just to look at what kind of wisdom is needed now, because now is changing. And the now in June and July of last year is not the same as the now mm. in February mm -hmm. uh, of this coming year. Uh, so the demands change a little bit as uh, new information comes in, as the vaccines become available, and as the virus mutates. But at the same time, what I want to do is uh, I wanted to actually see what would uh, social scientists think about how the society may evolve. Mm. So part of the project was not only to ask for their advice about how to deal with the pandemic, mm -hmm. which to some extent was missing because as I said, most of the perspectives were coming either from economists or health experts who then play hobby psychologists and start talking about you know misinformation even though they've never mm. done anything on this topic or they have no expertise on it. But also just to get a time lapse, sort of like a time capsule of 
opinions of the experts in social sciences about how the society will evolve in the moment of the pandemic. Something that uh, when I look at the previous pandemics, we actually haven't done. So we don't know mm. uh, what was on, uh, uh, for instance, uh, experts' minds during the time of the Spanish flu. Mm. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So then you, you put a, um, a questionnaire together that you fed out to these people. What were the kind of questions that you wanted to have them answer? So this was not necessarily a questionnaire. So what we did is I invited people to do a set of live interviews okay. uh, with me. Uh, they could have pre-recorded them or mm -hmm. they could have uh, also um, just, you know, like I zoomed mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> as we currently uh, talk. Uh, uh, I zoomed with a lot of people from all over the world. Right. Uh, and we have the live snippets that uh, we can also find, uh, anybody can find online. That's why I want to have this time capsule where it's actually live and you right. can see into uh, world's best academics homes, right. <laughs> their yeah. apartments and houses <laughs> and uh, what was on their mind and what kind of facial expressions did they have right. as they were thinking about the sure. Months and years ahead. <laughs> and so uh, we have uh, then five questions. We asked about uh, predictions, okay. possible visions for the future, mm -hmm. because as, I don't know about you, but I constantly keep on thinking, well, what will happen? When will this be over? Right. How will they uh, be able to travel again or to see our relatives or mm. how will we behave? How will it shape our society? So yeah. we ask questions about those type of predictions. We ask not only about the negative stuff, but we also, and this was very important for me, to ask about what could be the positive changes that could happen as a result of the pandemic. Such things as, you know, like people start asking themselves, do I really need to travel all the mm. time for business mm -hmm, trips? Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe we should work towards uh, reducing uh, uh, and restructuring our society towards a fairer society, mm -hmm. uh, given that uh, there are so many inequalities that become even more uh, visible because right. of the pandemic. So we ask about the positive changes, and we ask about the negative changes, and then we ask these three questions about, well, what do you need to sustain the positive Mm. and then to potentially mitigate the negative. And mm. finally, what kind of wisdom do we need now? Mm. So five questions in total, but this was open format. Uh, people could have prepared. Most of them didn't really have time to prepare because these are, you know, the top leaders in uh, behavioral social sciences mm. who only could spare like five to 10 minutes of their time. And so they just spontaneously provided their responses. Interesting. And so aside from being able to see into the homes of some of these people, <laughs> and, That's right. um, which would have been fascinating, I'm sure, um, is that the, 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 the kind of responses that you got, I, I, then you started to assemble these, these to see if there right. was some familiarity yeah. and there was some consistency within the answers that you were getting. Yeah, so what we had to do is when you deal with this type of open-ended uh, data with narratives, interviews, uh, we had to sort them uh, into themes. So we transcribed the responses and then uh, we did an iterative process where we tried to identify what would be the common themes mm -hmm. across different people that we interviewed. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we had independent group of coders categorize mm -hmm. uh, the responses on different themes put it together, cluster them together, we did it multiple times uh, so that we really get high reliability. And uh, yeah, ended up with a, 
a lot of different themes. Uh, in fact, there were more themes that there, there were uh, people that we interviewed. So a huge really? diversity. One of the things that we found right away is like, uh, we could have expected that people will say, well, everything will just go bad and mm. it will be just all, all around horrible. Mm. And uh, they could have all just focused on mental health, for instance, mm. uh, which I would have expected potentially. But no, the, the, in fact, what uh, most of the experts focused on were the social issues. They were focusing on uh, this notion of um, connectedness, both as a prediction and as a, a recommendation. So they were talking about the look. So in order to survive this type of pandemics, uh, what you need and what will probably happen, at least they hope it will happen, is that people will come together and they will start appreciating being together and sort of notions of solidarity, and um, uh, cooperation much more so than before. At the same time, they would say, well, but there's also a danger that that will not happen. Right. And uh, that we'll see more prejudice, more mistrust, uh, and uh, potentially uh, political conflict. And we have seen that already, right? Like we've sure. seen that both in the US, in Europe, mm. and to some extent in Canada. Right. And so you you take this information, but you also said, how do we mitigate that, right? As you look to the future, how do we emphasize right. the positive and and, uh, yeah. and play down the negative as, as it goes? Uh, what what kind of responses did you get to that? Well, a lot of responses were dealing with either emphasizing the um, moral uh, consequences, mm. uh, uh, things like uh, really appreciating uh, the perspectives of others, having a sense of empathy and uh, perspective taking, uh, consider that we have a notion of common or shared humanity, um, or uh, they focused on so-called metacognitive characteristics. So by that, I mean a set of uh, strategies that you can employ in order to better prepare yourself for the uncertainty ahead. Yeah. Uh, so in psychology and in philosophy, and it can go back to you can go back to ancient Greece, you can go back to mm. ancient China or Buddhist streams. Uh, you would find that there is a lot of convergence in uh, when people talk about, for instance, the notion of wisdom. Well, how do you navigate challenging situations? Uh, there is a lot of convergence on this kind of set of strategies um, that, in the new age uh, psychology, we would call sort of. Uh, self-transcendence or um, other fancy terms. But in reality, it's all very, very simple. What it comes down to is uh, having uh, a long-term focus instead of a short-term focus, mm. uh, paying attention to other people, uh, try to balance different interests instead of insisting that only one of them is absolutely right. Because sometimes, in, especially in an uncertain situation, you first have to ask yourself, how much knowledge do I even have? Do I have all the pieces of information? And so there it's important to ask for other people's opinions. It's important to consider different viewpoints. And so in that sense, it's like a metacognitive. It helps you to uh, reflect, think. It's thinking about thinking. It uh, helps you to think better about uh, the uncertainty that you're facing with. And so a lot of experts, and that was surprising to me in this uh, interview series emphasize this um, form of thinking about thinking as a way to deal with the pandemic. And that makes sense because uh, the pandemic has brought tremendous uncertainties and changes 
to our lives. And uh, consequently, uh, we have to uh, be flexible. We have to uh, consider different viewpoints. And we also have to be careful about generalizing from one situation to the next. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses, and uh, my guest is Igor Grossman. He is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo. And I'm talking to him about an article he wrote in The Conversation entitled Words of Wisdom, Four Tips from Experts on How to Endure Until the COVID-19 Pandemic Ends. Now, Igor also is a social cognitive scientist exploring the interplay of sociocultural factors for wisdom and sound judgment and developing methods for tracing societal change. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Igor, as you were speaking there, I couldn't help but think about experts, of course, are, are people. <laughs> and right. they're, they're struggling with the same thing that any other person is throughout this whole pandemic. And I, I'm wondering, is there a, is, did, you, did you think about that in terms of, and I was wondering about the answers you were getting, were they referring to how experts should be responding or governments, or were they talking about all of us and were they bringing it right down to the everyday person in terms of, you know, how we should be uh, trying to get through this? That's an excellent question. I think uh, one could answer it in two ways. Uh, first of all, I did explicitly ask them to uh, take a position of a normal person, mm. not uh, an mm. expert academics in okay. the ivory tower or right. very privileged uh, um, upper middle class position. Mm. But uh, and, and so their responses were, in fact, uh, 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 focusing on sort of general strategies that anybody can employ, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, mm -hmm. how to establish new routines right. or uh, how to pay attention to the long term, thinking about the pandemic as a marathon mm -hmm. and not as a sprint, as we have heard since uh, in many people say. But the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, when I started this project, to some extent, I wanted to use it as a way to evaluate expert judgment and how experts may sure. change their perspective. Ah. So like when I created this time, la uh, time capsule, mm -hmm. my initial idea was uh, when the pandemic is over, can I go back to the same experts and say, look, so this is what you predicted mm. and you were wrong. <laughs> and as most experts, even right. if they're like super duper scientists, right. sure. are likely to be wrong, especially yeah. the more confident they are, the more likely they are wrong. This is such an uncertain <laughs> situation. So why do you think you were wrong? Mm. Or what is your position of this now? So right. that's something that's still outstanding. Right. But the point was to also quantify the uncertainty in expert predictions and to say that even the experts don't really have a clear-cut answer. And anybody mm. who would claim that they know exactly what the future will look like mm. is probably not telling you everything. Mm. And uh, so what this project is showing also is that uh, there's such a fundamental diversity. In fact, one thing we didn't even expect, uh, but just naturally happened. So I asked these questions about positive consequences of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then I asked the question about negative consequences of the pandemic. And about half of the people, half of the experts and say, well, you know, the same thing can have both positive and negative consequences. 
it's just like different sides of the same metal mm. because uh, 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 our life is multi-determined and mm. depends on whom you are talking about for different strata of the population. You know, working from home may be actually great for all those who were commuting, but right. it may have also, it may show inequalities. It may, show, it may not be possible to everybody. And uh, for some parts of the population, it uh, may lead to tremendous distress, especially if they have children at home. Right. You know, as you were saying that, the one thing that came to mind was all those commuters, like you say, it may be of benefit for them. But all those businesses that those commuters would touch on the way to work and on the way home, uh, you know, picking up a cup of coffee, picking up groceries, whatever it might be, uh, they would all be negatively impacted by that as an example, for instance. Exactly. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly what this balance partially is about, that on the one hand, you have the uh, advantages, but then you have restructuring of the society that would mm-hmm. be happening as a consequence mm-hmm. of changes. And this type of restructuring is never a, a, a win-win for everybody. It right. may be a win-win in the long term, yes. but at least uh, in, the, in the process of restructuring, there will be uh, groups of the population Uh, that uh, would probably suffer, and we see that already. So as you say, you now sort of have this time stamp that you took uh, by speaking with the experts, and you're moving this forward, and you're going to be perhaps going back to them, like you said. What is it you're hoping to now do with either, one, the the information that you have, or looking to the future, and uh, as we go through this, I guess, you know, I guess th- this is something I was thinking about. We're still in this pandemic, but I'm sure this pandemic yeah. is going to be analyzed in so many different ways uh, by yeah. experts, by governments, by business. Everyone's going to be looking at this to say, okay, if we, if we ever end up in this situation again, how are we going to deal with it so we can uh, so we can get through it smoother? Um, so, what are you looking to do, and hopefully going to be looking to do, uh, you know, with this? Well, there are several things that we are aiming to do right now. Is one of them is um, uh, we try to sort of uh, emphasize the most common themes because even though it was very diverse, mm-hmm. uh, there was a few common recommendations, for instance, focus on the social connectedness is something that is really important right now to pay attention to your family, pay attention to uh, your uh, close friends. And this is very, very challenging, especially when we have here in Ontario stay at home orders Mm -hmm. where you can't even go and visit them. And uh, like, how can we, uh, for instance, communicate with others using virtual technology? So like, there are certainly recommendations and strategies, uh, but they would probably not be as accessible for everybody in the community, depending on your socioeconomic uh, status, depending on uh, how many resources you have to buy all this uh, new technology. Mm. And so to bring that to uh, policymakers' attention would be one of the important goals of mine right now. So to try to say, look, like we have to stay at home, we have to keep our distance, but we also have to remind ourselves that uh, in the time of the crisis, one of the things that most if most helpful to people is to be somehow mindful of uh, their close relationships. And how now? How do we resolve this conflict between staying apart? and maintaining social relationships, which we need in order to be sane mentally, uh, but also 
in order not to just go crazy mm. and uh, maybe check our misconceptions about the pandemic. We need to talk to other people about it. Otherwise, we'll all just end up in our uh, bubbles, in our echo chambers. And so uh, one idea would be to uh, somehow bring this uh, uh, awareness of this type of topics uh, to policymakers and have them consider them more seriously. So that's one of the uh, key goals for this project right now. Of course, as I said, like we're moving forward, we tried to also uh, be able to go back to some of the scientists later on and see if they have changed their minds and if this type of participation in expert judgment has been an exercise in intellectual humility for them. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that we also do is we have a much larger set of uh, surveys in this case, where we had over 700 uh, uh, social scientists make predictions about the future. And uh, we also examine different uh, strategies that led to greater or lower accuracy, at least over the course of the last half a year, where we actually can compare uh, what they predicted and the magnitude of change that they predicted to the actual a magnitude of change. So that's something that we're working on right now. Mm. Uh, so it's a project to actually mine and test the accuracy of uh, scientists' forecasts about uh, societal change. Mm. That sounds fascinating. It would be great to catch up with you at a later date once you have uh, more information on that or maybe have your conclusions and, uh, and, and touch base with you to find out what you have found out about uh, this whole situation as we go through it. Uh, Igor, there, there's one other thing I want to ask you about. At the bottom of your article, you, you have this um, a graph of, of sorts, uh, a world after COVID, 57 scientists, and you have a, a, a bunch of different things listed. You have three categories that are different uh, color-coded, now, against, negative, and four, positive. Um, how, what, what were you trying to show in that uh, graph? Well, as I mentioned, uh, we asked about different type of uh, advice. Mm -hmm. One form of advice was, uh, if you think about the negative changes, mm -hmm. that uh, negative consequences of the pandemic, mm -hmm. what kind of um, wisdom is needed to mitigate them. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, the type of wisdom against negative. Uh, then we also ask about like, what are the positive consequences of the pandemic? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, well, what kind of strategies do we need to sustain the positive? Mm. So that's mm -hmm. the full positive. Okay. And then at the end, we asked about the what kind of wisdom do people need right now to make it through the pandemic? Right. And so the different colors here on this uh, graph in the conversation yep. article represent uh, the magnitude. Well, first of all, how many people mentioned uh, the different themes in response to each of the questions? Right. And uh, what's really uh, important here is that like the social connectedness emerged for mm -hmm. each of the questions, for instance, whereas uh, kind of interest and will to introduce political and structural change, to fight against inequality, to have a, a fairer and just society for everybody, emerged mostly uh, for sustaining the positive and fighting against the negative consequences. Mm. Um, and and the social connectedness is that are you is that referring to on a personal level or was that extending it to the wider um, society and and country you know or nations? How is that uh, being described? Yeah, so that's uh, specifically referred to the uh, uh, 
uh, interpersonal level. Okay. On the uh, national level, we have this uh, set of categories that deal with political cooperation, for mm -hmm. instance, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, that would be like even internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the national level, uh, the topic of solidarity, right. uh, paying attention to different clusters of the population where people either more vulnerable due to their physical limitations or the, due to socioeconomic limitations, that would be a separate category dealing with the societal consequences. Great. Agar, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and share this information with us. And we wish you all the best with this, uh, this ongoing experiment that you have going on. And we look forward to having you back on the show at a later date to maybe catch up and see what you found out. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you and take care. Bye-bye. That's Iger Grossman. He is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo, and we were speaking to him about the conversation, an article he wrote in the conversation entitled Words of Wisdom, Four Tips from Experts on How to Endure Until the COVID-19 Pandemic Ends. You can go to the conversation and find that and read up on it yourself. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. <laughs> This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.